anyone who watches crime dramas could reasonably conclude that when someone is murdered, barring bizarre and extenuating circumstances, the case is solved. That is, through high-tech forensics, moral resolve, or simply the near-mythic competence of American law enforcement, killers are ultimately sent to jail. But as an investigative reporter who has worked in one of the most violent cities in the country for nearly 15 years, I can tell you, this is not true. And that is the point of this podcast, because unsolved killings represent more than just statistics. It's a psychic toll of stories untold that infects an entire community. The final violent moments of a victim's life that remain shrouded in mystery. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And we are investigative reporters who live in Baltimore City. Welcome to the land of the unsolved. My name is Taya Graham, and welcome back to The Land of the Unsolved. The podcast explores both the evidence and politics of mysterious cases in Baltimore and beyond. Today, we will be reporting new evidence and insight into a case we've been covering over the last three episodes. Of course, I'm talking about the death of two people in a trash chute of a Baltimore City high-rise. For those who are listening to us for the first time, I urge you to go back and listen to the three preceding episodes to familiarize yourself with the details of the case. But for now, I'll give a brief recount. The story starts, as I said, at a Baltimore apartment building called the Park Charles. There, in October of 2011, police found the body of a young woman in the dumpster. At first, they had no idea who she was or how she got there. But then, due to a chance encounter between a young man and police in the lobby of the building, investigators soon discovered her identity and where she was just prior to her death. That's because the man, a medical student, was carrying a plastic bag full of the belongings of Emily Howes. Howes, a recent graduate of nearby Loyola University, had left a party with that same man that evening, and now she was dead. Police questioned the young man, and the interviews were reenacted in our previous episode. The medical examiner ruled her death an accident, and police closed the case. But that wasn't the end of her story. Because it turns out just a year before Emily's death, another person, a young man named Harsh Kumar, also died in the trash chute in 2010. It's an apparent coincidence that prompted us to delve into the story and dig deeper. Part of what has helped us to find new information is that we obtained the entire homicide case file of the investigation into Emily's death. And today, we're going to share more details from the file and discuss and analyze what the evidence says about the story that both these deaths were accidents. All that coming up on The Land of the Unsolved. Hey, this is Taya Graham from The Land of the Unsolved. If you enjoy our podcast and would like us to investigate even more cases, consider supporting our work by either subscribing on our Anchor page, or you can also buy one of the books Stephen and I wrote that are available on Amazon and a variety of other websites. Why Do We Kill? The Pathology of Murder in Baltimore, written with former homicide detective Kelvin Sewell, and You Can't Stop Murder. 
Truths About Policing in Baltimore and Beyond, also in collaboration with a former detective and guest on our show, Stephen Tabling. Or if you're in the mood for a fictive take on how Baltimore's struggle with violence and aggressive policing has affected the psyche of the city, I recommend you pick up This Dream Called Death, a book Stephen wrote while he was covering the city's failed attempt to implement zero-tolerance policing and how he reveals the truly corrosive power of that policy by casting it into an alternate reality where the mind and our dreams become the new frontier for government surveillance. So I'm joined by some great investigative reporters, the legendary Jane Miller and my reporting partner, Stephen Janis. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Taya. Good to be here. Now, first, Jane, we all listened to the interview between police and the last person to see Emily alive. What questions or thoughts did it raise for you? Well, look, there's the big there's a big question in this case, which is a time gap from the time that we have evidence that Emily was alive and where she was and then a five, six hour time gap where she was found, which is in the trash chute of the apartment building in which she had gone with one of the residents of the apartment that evening. Um, Police did interview him and he gave, you know, an explanation in the interview of what he thought happened and he doesn't said he didn't know what happened, that last he knew, she had gotten up to go to the bathroom. And that's it. Next thing you know, she's in the trash chute. Maintenance man finds her in the trash chute around 8 o'clock that morning. And he is then seen, of course, going out of the apartment building with, or going through the lobby of the apartment building with a bag with her belongings in it when he ran into the police. Um, I think his interview is, I, I, there's nothing in the interview that particularly stands out as aha but you know that really raises a question I mean there there are some things that do raise questions you know he suggested kind of on his own that she may have been sleepwalking well how do we know that he barely knows this woman you know met at a party went home for the night you know um you know some other things you know but I don't I don't think there's anything in the interview that that takes this case one way or the other and that's the problem with this case is that there is, this is a very unusual death, and then there happened to be two of them, uh, you know, within a year apart, in the, you know, in the same, involving the same trash bin at the bottom of the chute in the same apartment building. And that, that's kind of the problem with the case, is that this is one of those cases that lacks um, video evidence. Now, this was 2011 when this happened, so we didn't have cameras all over the place like we have now. And it lacks witnesses other than the man she was with and the roommate who can also put her in that apartment. But there's nobody that saw her enter a trash chute, nobody that saw her enter a trash bin uh, that we're aware of. And so it's it's one of those cases that really lacks evidence and um, clues as to what really happened here. I mean, to me, the the accident finding is kind of a default. You know, it's, well, we don't have any signs of homicide. And it doesn't look like a suicide because what a crazy way to try to commit suicide. And so th- the only other thing that, that you know, is left is that this is either undetermined, 
And frankly, I'm surprised that it wasn't an undetermined finding, but that it's undetermined or it's an accident. And the ME ruled it an accident. And the minute that happens, bam, case closed. Um, Stephen, how about you? What questions did it raise for you? I think, uh, you know, this is purely my sort of analysis of the interview done by the homicide detectives. To me, they spent a lot of time with superfluous questions about, um, you know, what kind of sex position or things that we actually omitted because they were so bizarre. But what they didn't do is get him to really give them a very concrete timeline of what happened after Emily came to their apartment and get him to recount in great detail and reconcile some of the details that he gave to them. You know, for for example, and, um, you know, we'll get to this later, but, you know, he had talked about giving her a pair of shorts after they engaged in sexual activity, but her body was, when, when she left the apartment, when she left to go to the bathroom where she said, I'll be right back, don't go anywhere. Um, and then, you know, suddenly when her body is found, excuse me, not suddenly, but when her body is found, uh, she is completely naked. So why did he tell her? Why did he tell them that? And then there's the morning when he wakes up, when he supposedly wakes up at uh, 8 or 9.30 and says, she's missing, her clothes are all here, uh, I'm, I was really upset. Or, you know, s- says to the detectives, but then he falls back asleep because he's so upset. And then he never calls police. He tells them, I never call police. If you wake up and you're suddenly, and though he describes being completely, you know... Um, so... He actually said that he was panicked to not find her present in his room. Yes, exactly. And and for him to, you know, not to call police or or reach out to law enforcement or somewhere if he's really concerned um, was never fully explained to me. It doesn't mean that he did anything wrong because that's not it's just a, a question I wish they had explored. You know, why didn't you call police if you if you say you're this upset and if you say the fact that she's gone and all her clothes are not there? I think, you know, they should have pushed him a little harder on the timeline of how that all evolved, why he went back to sleep, and then, of course, pushed him more on why he didn't call police. But, you know, as Jane said, again, there's nothing in there that, besides the sleepwalker comment, which is a little strange, um, that really says, you know, stands out as being transformative of what we know about the case. You know, it doesn't give us information other than the fact that no one knew that she was in this man's apartment um, in the media, like it had never been reported. So... So it was it was a very interesting, but not necessarily totally informative interview. You know, his focus on the sleepwalker comment stood out to me as well, because I believed he repeated that to Emily's friend who had called essentially frantic, concerned about Emily because she hadn't heard from her yet. So he he spoke to her on the phone. He said that's actually what woke him up the second time. Stephen, can you talk a little bit about that conversation he had with her friend and the comments he made to her? Well, supposedly what he told detectives is he the phone was ringing he woke up again at 11 to it ringing he calls emily's the last number on emily's phone it turns out to be one of her best friends and she says um do you know where emily is are you, is she with you and he's like no i i was hoping she was with you and then she starts to panic and then he makes he he tells detectives there's no transcript of this call he says he asks does she sleepwalk the only reason that that is of note is because that was the assertion made in the previous case that the man, Harsh Kumar, was a sleepwalker or took Ambien. But, you know, that, that it just could be a coincidence. But, yes, he does suggest that. And supposedly, according to the timeline, that's before he knows that Emily's body is in the basement. Like, he would at that point, based on his story, have no idea where she was. So that does, 
you know, raise questions, more questions that I was wish they had followed up on with him. And and again, they didn't. They they would keep turning the interview back to weird, you know, do you smoke pot or something? Um, which I just didn't understand why they weren't just more particular about the details. The only thing you have at that point as a detective are details, and I think it's important to get them get them down. Well, one thing about the interview with noting, which I mean, Stephen has said some pretty bizarre questions, but clearly what the detectives were driving at was there some kind of sex act that ended up badly. Um, that's that's what they were clearly driving at in the interview with with him and, you know, under the circumstances that she had left the party with him, et cetera, and that there was no question that they had sex together. I mean, that's at least what, you know, the police were told by him. Um, I don't I don't find that. I don't find that unusual because that would be exactly what they may have been thinking. You have two young people, college students or, you know, postgraduate students, et cetera, you know, go to a party, a lot of drinking. They go back to the apartment. You know, is that what happened? The other thing that bothers me about this case is you have to believe that someone in the middle of the night in a strange place gets up, goes out of the apartment into the hallway, wanders down the hallway, sees the trash suit, and decides, oh, I'm going to see what this does. Let me see where this goes. I don't. Th- there aren't many college students that don't know what the trash suit is because they live in dorms and apartment buildings, et cetera, and they're familiar with that. It just is, I mean, it's it really strains the imagination that really that's what, you have to believe happened here is that she was exploring the hallway and opened the trash chute and crawled in it. It's not a big door. We all know that. It's like, you know, 12 by 20 or 12 by 18 or what. It's a small door. Opens from the top, not from the side, which would be easier to crawl into, but opens from the top, which means you have to somehow get yourself up over the door to get into the chute. And that I think of, of all of the things about this case that it really troubles me that it's like, oh, OK, that happened. And that's, you know, it's just um, it, it's odd. It definitely strains the imagination. It really does. So, Stephen, you've been digging into the case files and you found some more interesting clues and evidence. You know, let me just say one thing about what Jane said, which is kind of fascinating. I agree with Jane that they I think that was what their theory is. But they kept throwing questions at him with no strategy, if that's what they believed. They just kept throwing more and more bizarre questions. Maybe they were going to see how he reacted. But if that's your question, just drill down into the details. The more you get him to recount the details, the more chance there is he's going to slip up or say something. They just ask questions like, you know, I'm not even going to repeat them. But I didn't feel that they were really had a strategy going into this. But Jane is right. I think absolutely, because the questions they asked, the only way you can explain them is that they really believed it was a bad sexual encounter gone wrong, you know, and that that led to some violence or something. That's all I can think. So the first thing I found in in the case file were some notes from the previous homicide investigation into the death of Harsh Kumar. Um, as we know, Mr. Kumar was the first person to die uh, in the trash chute, and police had ruled that, or the medical examiner ruled that an accident as well. What's interesting is police had interviewed a girlfriend and his sister, and particularly the girlfriend said that he liked to take Ambient and fall asleep in weird places. I, I mean, I don't know if he liked to take Ambient or he, he had, I guess, psychological problems, she said, 
and he took Ambien, and, and she even told police that he fell outside, um, like a train station, uh, you know, um, in D.C. or something, a metro station. Like, he was so uh, notorious for taking this and, like, sleepwalking. So he was known to sleepwalk. And another interesting thing, in, and it was a very brief passage from the progress reports that homicide detectives file on a regular basis um, to keep track of a case. The other thing was that the day Mr. Kumar died, uh, the building manager told police that someone set off the fire alarm in the entire building and caused a panic. And to this day, the building manager did not know who did it, couldn't find anyone who did it. As Jane points out, there aren't cameras everywhere, so it was impossible to know. But just about the same time Harsh Kumar died, somebody set off the fire alarm in the building. So those were just two very interesting things. I mean, first, you know, it does seem to say that it's possible he had crawled in there. But again, I think Jane made a great point. Like, who does that? And who doesn't know what a trash chute is? And who doesn't, and who doesn't know what's at the other end of it? Um, and uh, the, other, the other thing is, you know, that, that he did have this propensity for taking ambient, which some people say ambient can make you kind of sleepwalk. Like, there have been cases where people get start driving in a car, I guess. I mean, was it Roseanne Barr who said she, she took Ambien? Her tweeting, uh, le- her, she was tweeting on Ambien, which led to some, uh, let's say, controversial remarks yeah. that she made. So that's the first thing. Um, I don't know if, Jane, you want to add anything to that or... No, I just think, you know, it's extraordinary. It's not like we have, you know, bodies showing up in the trash bin at the bottom of a trash chute multiple times a year. We don't. And we have two cases in the same building with similar circumstances within a year. It's just odd. It's very odd. So, Stephen, something that stood out to me was that police confiscated used condoms during the search in both the master bedroom and the bathroom. Can you talk about that and why that's important? Yes, there were condoms found all around the house. One were, were found in a trash can, um, I think in the kitchen, and one in the master bedroom. Or no, in the bathroom. One was found in the bathroom in a trash can, and one was found in the master bedroom. Both of them had DNA of the young man she was with, but these condoms had the DNA of another woman, an unknown woman, a woman that has never to this day been identified, which I don't know what that means, Um you know, it was interesting because the police also asked both the medical student and his roommate if he, if he, either of them had girlfriends. He said no. And when they asked uh, the medical student if he'd had sex recently before Emily, he said it'd been a couple weeks. And he, they had also asked him when he was when he had taken out the trash the last time, and he had said a couple days ago. Right. I think he actually said that it was either Tuesday or Wednesday of that week. So that would have been almost five or six days prior to, because this, this uh, Emily's death happened on a Saturday. So you have these mysterious condoms sitting around the house with another woman's DNA. I don't know if the detectives, there's, there's evidence that they reached out to one person, one female friend of his, but they don't really comment on whether or not, you know, they had engaged in sex or, you know, what what the contours of the relationship was. And it is unusual because he did specify that when he had sex with Emily, he did not use a condom and he did not finish the sex act. Right, which creates even more kind of oddly contrasting evidence. Um, You know, it doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it's just another, as Jane said, this case of cumulative oddities that, you know, we, the more you kind of look into it, the more, it less it seems complete a picture that makes sense to anybody. The one thing that I think we need to say, I think we need to say this, is that if you are in 
the the apartment resident's shoes. And this happens with Emily. And this is a woman you just met, and next thing you know, you know, she's dead in the trash chute. And you get interviewed by the police. It, it's a it's a tough thing to do. And I so I I try not to put a lot of first of all, you're not there, so you don't hear the tone, the inflection, et cetera. And so you're just reading words on a page. But it is clearly a difficult situation for him. And so you try not to, you, I mean, you look at what he's saying, et cetera, um, but, you know, you also have to put it in the context of someone who's in a situation, if this indeed was an accident, they're in a situation that they never dreamed they'd be in. You know, it's something that you mentioned is that you can't hear tone, you can't hear inflection, you can only read the words on the page. Do either one of you remember the moment in the uh, discussion or interrogation with the person of interest when he found out that Emily's body had been found? Does, do either one of you remember his reaction? Yes, it was muted. As Jane points out, and, and she is right, um, this is a very stressful situation. Um, anything you say can incriminate you. And the police obviously concluded that this young man was not a suspect. And I think it's important to say that. Um, but, you know, to accurately, accurately report what was in the actual um, interview transcript, and I don't know if there was any emotional outbreak other than what his words were, it was just sort of, it seemed very muted. It seemed very matter of fact. That's the only way I can describe it. That's an accurate description. I can't intuit what if he made some sort of gesture, he started crying, it doesn't say. But yes, it was just kind of like, oh. Right. I didn't notice that the detectives responded in a way that would say, that's okay, take a moment, take a breath, gather yourself, we're almost done. I didn't hear any of that sort of like conciliatory or consoling type of response from the detectives after he responded. No, it was very matter of fact. I can put, that doesn't mean anything, but it it was accurately accurately to report it as a matter of fact. I just think, you know, th these folks only knew each other for a very short period of time. So there wasn't like a great emotional attachment here that was developed. And they're only together for a few hours and this happens. And, you know, if, if he's in a, exactly, he's in a very stressful situation. So another thing you found is a text between the medical student and his roommate when he woke up and told police he found Emily was missing. Can you talk a little bit about that? He described it to his roommate. He was asking if he'd seen her, and he described the whole situation to his um, roommate as bizarre because he just wasn't used to a woman coming over to his house and then getting up without her clothes and walking out of the apartment. And it's interesting because it's something the detectives asked him as well, said, can you think of another example of someone just walking out of an apartment naked and walking around Baltimore City? It was kind of a pointed question. And, you know, I think the, to Jane's point, this shows a very weird situation. I think, you know, he's confronting a situation where a woman came to his house, he supposedly had sex and they had a good time. And then she leaves without her, any of her belongings. So for him to describe it as bizarre, you know, is is interesting to me um, because, you know, it kind of shows what he was confronting at that point was that supposedly, according to his story, uh, she just got up and walked out with not wearing anything. And um, uh, I just thought it was worth noting that he called it bizarre. 
So there are some discrepancies about how the medical student came into contact with police. Um, Gene, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, I think he was observed exiting the lobby. He was in, this was after he this was after eleven o'clock in the morning. So that a long time has passed here between them getting to the apartment and in the middle of you know whatever one two o'clock in the morning whatever time that was, and then Emily leaving or getting out of bed and saying she's going to the bathroom or whatever and not coming back. Um, he wakes up, I think he said, first around 8 o'clock, and she wasn't there. He went back to sleep. Now he's waking up to the phone call from a friend. So now he understands she's not there. She's missing. And he goes, he takes her things and puts them in a white trash bag. What I understand from this is that the police ran into him, literally, in the lobby as he's on his way through the lobby. I don't want to say he was on the way out of the building, but he was on his way through the lobby. Well, I can read exactly. I found the exact text. A white male was observed exiting the lobby and told police he was searching for a female friend, quote. But he had her things with him. Yes, supposedly to give to her friend who had called him on the phone. Was it ever confirmed whether or not there was a friend that arrived there waiting to receive her belongings? No, that's another interesting and intriguing aspect of the investigation Um, They didn't pull his phone records, and they didn't ask the friend to confirm that story, as far as I can tell. Now, all these cases to describe them to people include a variety of things, include updates from homicide detectives, which, you know, are written out, which are typed from their Lotus Note system, which they bought in the 90s, Jane, and just because we've talked about this before. And then there is um, notes that are included that the detective takes at the time because they're supposed to take notes. Some of the notes give us some of this information, but they're often very hard to read, like my handwriting. So they don't always give you, you can't always discern what it is. But um, the basic story seems to be he encountered a police officer exiting the lobby. He had the belongings, but no one ever talked to her friends to say, did you talk to them? No one ever pulled the records to see or confirm if that phone call actually happened. So we don't know. We do know, and I'll emphasize this, that police asked him this question. He did not call police after he felt that she was missing. He went downstairs. At some point in the interview, he says, well, I, I saw police, so maybe I thought I should talk to them. But according to the notes, it says that he was seen exiting the building. So we don't know. So police also requested that the medical student take a lie detector test. What happened? Well, the, the student declined, which I think is his right to do. And um, also because lie detector tests are inadmissible, I think it's a real gambit. I don't know why anyone would voluntarily take a lie detector test, but it's just worth noting that they asked him, and he said he would not. Um, He had a lawyer at that time, and I'm sure the lawyer advised him that wouldn't be a good idea. And Jane, I know you have some pretty um, interesting opinions about lie detector tests or what you think about them. Yeah, I don't don't put any weight in somebody taking one or or declining to take one. I mean, they're, they're not admitted into evidence for lots of reasons. And one of them is that there's lots of different interpretations of what people say in them or, or, or how they respond and how they're measured, I should say, how their responses are measured. I, mean, I would, I, if I was advising someone, I would say don't take one. You know, for the record, I've actually taken a lie detector test and I was told that my readings were so truthful that I should testify in front of Congress. So <laughs> just, just as a side note. Well, I mean, it, it measures your skin conductivity, your pulse rate, you know, it, it, but there's never been, there's no scientific correlation between saying someone gets nervous answering a question actually means they're lying. I mean, 
truthfully speaking, if you have a police officer and you're hooked up to a machine and, you know, you're asked some very pointed questions, your heart rate might go up. I, I think my heart rate would go up. You're so You're already stressed out, correct. Yeah. So I think it's, I just thought it was worth noting because I saw it in the notes and, you know, I mean, I don't know why anyone would do it, but he was asked and he said no. So, Stephen, one thing I just wanted to ask you about is that we were reaching out to people who were uh, who alleged that they were at the party the night uh, that Emily met him um, and that they had uh, a girlfriend that had some interaction with that person of interest. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, what we uncovered? Yeah. I mean, OK, so a couple. Let me put a couple caveats. This post, I was directed to this post by someone who had listened to the show on the Baltimore Reddit. And it was actually made in response to after the case that Jay and I worked on for years and years, Ray Rivera, and Ray Rivera's case of the young man who supposedly jumped off the Belvedere Hotel, but of course there are a lot of people who dispute that, was the subject of an Unsolved mystery series um, that got a lot of attention. And they wanted to say, talk about Emily. And so the, in the post, uh, one of the people responded saying that his girlfriend uh, was being hit on pretty heavily by the guy who eventually left with Emily and that, um, you know, uh, that he thought that it was kind of weird. So I reached out to this person and they got back in touch with me and they recounted that same story. Um, I can't confirm this from anyone else. Uh, like I can't, I can't go to someone else who's at the party, but his description was it was a party of mostly Loyola people, recent graduates of Loyola, who had gathered to at a house before, it's like called like a pregame party, I guess, where you go out before you go to the bars. And I mean, you go to the, you all get together and drink before you go to the bars. And, um, and he said that this young man showed up at the party who didn't really know anybody and was extremely aggressive in hitting on his girlfriend. And he finally had to intervene. Um, that's what he said. Now, I think it's worth noting because we know so little about this case. Um, but it has to come with a caveat that, you know, I'm taking a per- first-person account. But he did say this, um, and I think we can share this. He said, Emily was the sweetest, nicest person, very popular, but also very kind of like a, a shy young woman who would do anything people, you know, was always willing to go along with the group. And, and just, she said, a person who didn't deserve what happened. And I think it's clear, even the few people that, you know, I've seen posts from or whatever. I think it's clear that um, nobody thinks that she just decided to, on her own, crawl down a trash chute. I think that's clear among her friends because I had heard from someone else who who knew her and had said the same thing. So there's a couple people who describe her as a wonderful person, but also someone that they don't think would have done this uh, on her own. And not only um, did we hear feedback that she was a wonderful young woman, but she had graduated cum laude um, with a degree um, in secondary education um, and was very much looking forward to a career as a teacher. So it's certainly a tragic loss, not only for her family and friends, but for what she could have contributed. No, I think it's, it's a just very unfortunate situation with a, you know, a young woman you know what whatever happened that night she certainly didn't think was going to happen i can't imagine that this was something that she intended to happen and you know and the question remains is well just exactly what did happen 
And I wanted you to know that I had been looking over some of the past coverage of when the deaths first occurred, and some of the residents um, had some interesting things to say about the shoots themselves. Now, these are people who lived in this apartment building where these two deaths occurred. Now, according to the Baltimore Sun's reporting, uh, 25-year-old Allison Busby, who lived at the Park Charles for three years, said, quote, It's not like you could just fall in. The door would shut before I could even get my trash bag into it. It would slam shut. It was kind of a pain. And she also stated, if someone did manage to crawl inside for God knows what reason, the chute door would close on you by the time you got your shoulders inside. And again, two or three more times as you shimmied your body into it. Now, a professional photographer who had lived in the building for about 14 months at that time uh, mentioned in relation to Emily House's death, he said, quote, don't insult our intelligence. It happened last year. Management sent us the same letter about Kamara's death and never told us the results of the investigation. Some people think it was someone who knew what happened last year and wanted to do it again. Others are asking, is there a serial killer in the building? Now, interestingly, they contacted David Hillman, who is the head of the Southern Management Corporation, which owned the Park Charles, and even he was puzzled by the trash chute death and by how someone could even get inside the trash chute. And he said, quote, they are the smallest size they can be and still take trash. Now, remember, Jane, as you mentioned, these trash chutes about, are about 18 inches by 20 inches. In the Baltimore Sun report, they mentioned it as being 16 by 18. So there's a little discrepancy there on the size. However, it's agreed that they are spring hinged, which means they open and close on their own. As you said, they open from the top down, which makes it even more difficult to get inside. What is your reaction to these quotes from the residents who were living there during the time of these deaths? Well, I think they're asking the same questions we're asking. And the other thing that we just, to put this into, into, the, into the story, from all appearances, the trash bin, the dumpster, I mean, the, you know, the big thing that the trash empties into where her body was, it seems to be accessible from the outside. So, you know, we keep talking about the trash chute because the trash dumpster is at the bottom of the chute, but... Who knows? I mean, you know, that's just the the autopsy was pretty clear. I mean, that that she suffered injuries with because she had contact with the compactor. So in order to really determine what injury occurred when is probably very difficult in this case. And, you know, and the and the you know, she she suffered damage, a lot of damage to her body once she was in that trash bin. Then, yeah, it's going to be hard to know what may have happened prior to. Jane, do you think that going through the compactor as horrible it is to talk about it was is would be a way to cover up wounds that might have occurred before? Well, it's possible, sure. I mean, but obviously if the the autopsy would have discovered a gunshot wound, for example, um, it probably could determine strangulation, for example. But trauma would be a different story uh, because she's suffering trauma when she's in the bin. And so that's that's a good question. It's those residents at the time are, are asking exactly the same questions. And all these years later, those questions still exist. I mean, I feel like in, in a way it's like the somewhat like the Ray Rivera case in that you have tantalizing clues, but nothing you know, no smoking gun that just 
is dispositive in the way like you can say, okay, this clearly points to one theory. I don't feel like we have that with this case. Do you? No. And this is one of those, you know, look, in Baltimore City has very high gun violence rate. So, you know, the vast majority of homicides slash questionable deaths, et cetera, involve pretty clear evidence. So you have, you know, shell casings next to the body. You've got gunshot wounds. Um, you do have these cases that are odd and don't have clear explanations and, you know, don't follow the same pattern as so much of the violence and so much of the way people die in this town. So when you get one of these, you know, and and it raises, you know, it has a lot of questions that don't seem to have any answers. And like I said, once that autopsy was in, was ruled an accident, and even though the autopsy was signed like months later, there's conversation going on between the homicide detectives and the coroner right away. Because the coroner's ruling is somewhat dependent on what the homicide detectives are telling her. And they are you know, she's also kind of governing the investigation based on what she's telling them about the injuries. So it's the two are complement one another in terms of coming up with, you know, a ruling. But like I said, this could just as easily have been ruled undetermined. And I'm actually surprised it wasn't because we don't know how she got in the trash chute. If she did, right? We don't know. So to say it was an accident means you have, that's what you're implying. You're implying she accidentally climbed in the trash chute and went down the trash chute. That's the only explanation that you can draw from that ruling in the autopsy. And I mean, it's certainly, there isn't a lot of information in the case file that tells us why they believe that's the only conclusion possible. But as you point out, you know, uh, met, uh, undetermined is when you can't rule anything out or in, but obviously they ruled out everything else. And I can't see in the case file where they got that sense that they could rule out any other explanation other than just Emily crawling in there by her own volition. And she didn't have any suicidal ideation or any sort of, she had, didn't have a reputation as a sleepwalker or someone who takes weird medication. It was clear she'd only drank alcohol that night, um, which, you know, You'd have to be awfully drunk, I guess. But still, I think you raise a great point. Undetermined, although, you know, we have had our problems with undetermined from that office. Rulings undetermined. Undetermined is supposed to say, I can't completely rule in or out the four other manners of death, you know, accident, suicide, homicide, natural. And so I think, yes, I think that's a great point. And then it would have allowed at least the case to proceed in some form. But yeah, accident, there's no homicide detective who's going to try to overturn an accident ruling by a by a medical examiner. No, not in a city that's got, you know, I mean, it, in 2011, that was actually 197 homicides that year, which was the lowest in a long time. But, you know, all around it were years with 250 plus. So, yes, you, this is not a city that's going to, you know, dwell on a case that has a ruling that isn't homicide. If we gather any new information about the death of Emily Howes or Harsh Kumar, we will be sure to share it with you. And of course, if you have any knowledge about these two deaths, please reach out to us. If you have a tip or a comment, please email us at landoftheunsolved at gmail.com. We always want to hear from you and always appreciate your input and feedback. My name is Taya Graham. And I want to thank you for joining me for this episode of The Land of the Unsolved. <laughs>